0: Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode...
1: I had made enough recipes that I thought, I have a few products here to bring to market. Got myself a lease in Edinburgh, and the scariest thing was putting the sign on the door because then I thought, oh wow, I have to go through with this now.
0: Ah, chocolate. Mmm, many of us have been relishing it and relying on it through the COVID pandemic. And even in normal times, chocolate can be a luscious friend that wraps us in its delicious tasting embrace. Chocolate is also one of the world's biggest selling foods. But far from the mass-produced chocolate of supermarket aisles, Rebecca Knights has made it her life's work to produce quality, artisanal, award-winning chocolate made from the finest ingredients and hand-tempered on marble. When Rebecca Knights left home at 16, she knew one day she wanted to start her own business and create a wonderful product. She just didn't know back then how or what or when that would happen. She wasn't a chef, nor was she a trained food technician, and she'd never run her own business. But after time spent washing dishes and waitressing in the hospitality game... Rebecca eventually decided to train at the prestigious Balrona School in France to become a chocolatier. She went on to be the founder and creative force behind Cocoa Chocolate, a boutique company devoted to produce beautifully packaged, handmade, organic and ethically produced chocolate and to establish the Sydney Chocolate School. Now, there's a heck of a lot to her story, including a great many challenges along the way. So let's hear right now from Rebecca Knights. Rebecca Knights from Cocoa Chocolate, thank you so much for joining me on Build It They'll Come. Great to have you here. Oh, you're welcome, Helen. It's exciting to be here. Really great that we can talk in this lockdown. Let's hope it doesn't last too long. Now, you are the founder and creative force behind Cocoa Chocolate. It's a chocolate brand. What is Cocoa Chocolate right now? Can you paint us a snapshot? Sure. So Cocoa Chocolate, even though it
1: started in 2004, We're predominantly a one-store in Currabilly. We're the Sydney Chocolate School, which is based at Middlehead. We do online sales as well, but obviously in lockdown, the Currabilly store hours have come all the way down and we're heavily relying on internet sales and a chalk and collect system. So the business has
0: changed fundamentally in lockdown. So the business you founded is based on what age-old European chocolate making technology, but with very much a 21st century environmental and sustainable overlay that you've developed. Can you explain a bit about that? Sure. So I originally
1: went and learned hand tempering on marble in France right back to the 90s when I decided that was the place I had to be to learn. And so I still do the traditional hand tempering on marble where basically you pour the chocolate out on the marble, move it around, change the temperatures and it adjusts the look and the feel of the chocolate to be that shiny, snappy, beautiful chocolate that we all enjoy. Always I wanted to use organically farmed chocolate and so that's predominantly what we always use depending on if we do collaborations. So for example, with Giovanni Pillu down at Pillot Freshwater, he particularly wanted to use a brand called Demore that was started by the Illy family. So that's not organic, but our main coverage is always organic. And with that, luckily organically farmed usually and ours always goes hand in hand with being a member of SEDEX that
0: ensures basically fair trade. Yeah. So before we get to some of those things, the more sustainable side, what is your chocolate? I mean, for the uninitiated, what is the difference between cocoa and cacao? I mean, I sort of get it, but can you explain it? And what is couverture? Sure. So cocoa chocolate
1: specializes in real chocolate and it always has been the thing. That is no selling off of the cocoa butter, which a lot of the cheaper chocolate, they sell the cocoa butter to all sorts of places, but predominantly the makeup industry to use in products. And then they replace it with an alternative fat. The alternative fat, unfortunately, in chocolate is usually palm oil, but Most people don't want to write palm oil and they list it as vegetable fat. We never wanted to go down that route because for us, you want to use the whole bean and the whole bean is the cocoa mass and the cocoa butter. So all that cocoa butter goes back into our chocolate. So fundamentally, real chocolate has all the cocoa butter, the cocoa mass and also real vanilla. And often people say in our classes, oh, should I eat this brand or this brand? I just say, turn over the label. And if it says cocoa butter and vanilla, it's worth a shot. If it
0: says vegetable fat, vanillin, probably not so great. So cacao is the bean essentially from a plant and the cocoa butter is contained in that naturally? That's correct. So when they harvest the cocoa
1: pod, it's full of the cocoa beans. And basically the bean is made up of two things, the cocoa mass, which is the brown part, the part with all the flavour and the cocoa butter, which is the oil throughout the chocolate. And so, for example, a lot of people say, oh, white chocolate, that's not really chocolate. And purists will say no, because it has to have some cocoa mass in it. But at least the cocoa white chocolate is as real as it can be because it uses half the bean because the only fat in that white chocolate is the cocoa butter from the cocoa bean.
0: Okay. So essentially you don't use any palm oil. Never. We, We don't use palm oil. And do all the big brands, I mean, I'm going to name them, do Cadbury's and Lee, do they all use palm oil? Well, we'd have to turn over the ingredients label because I would hate
1: to say anything that I don't know for sure. Really, the chocolatier goes to the expense of putting all that cocoa butter back into their chocolate. They will never list vegetable fat. They'll list cocoa butter. So that's a telltale sign to look out for.
0: Yeah. And why do you do that? Is it just for sustainability or is it healthier for us just to use the natural cocoa butter?
1: It's definitely healthier, but it's what chocolate's all about. So chocolate should be the whole bean. And so using the whole bean in the chocolate, which is cocoa mass, cocoa butter, then you're getting what chocolate is all about. In the UK, they actually tried to get in EU legislation that chocolate made with alternative fats should never be called chocolate. And all the small chocolatiers were really excited. Oh, what, what's going to happen? And they said, yes, you know, maybe it shouldn't be called chocolate if it's not using the whole bean. And the rumor was it was going to be called Vegilate. So all those chocolate brands out there, instead of being called chocolate, was Vegilate, which was more what it was about. And we were all super excited. And then the EU legislation came through and they said, yep, it won't be called chocolate anymore, it'll be called family chocolate, which really didn't differentiate and also the way they wrote family was tiny, but I guess it was a start in people knowing there's a difference.
0: Yeah, so look, it's just extraordinary. You were going to explain what couverture is as well.
1: Sure, so couverture or couverture is really a French term and of all things it loosely translates to blanket. But in the history of chocolate, a real chocolate was used to coat over fine ganaches, fine caramels and so forth. Couverture now is a legal term. You can't call chocolate couverture unless it's real and real being, going back to what we talked about, cocoa butter, real vanilla, high cocoa mass percentages.
0: Right. So it's just a a
1: proper name for the real chocolate. The real deal. And Coverture has to be tempered. So when you get Coverture, it's quite white looking, quite dull. And so it needs to be tempered to make it that shiny, snappy chocolate that we all enjoy. So a lot of people say it's harder to use, but once you learn how to temper, it's really not so hard.
0: So Rebecca, what is the environmental, the sustainability overlay? Your website lists a number of accreditations that you have. Can you just tell us about those? Why do you do that?
1: So organic farming as well, it not only, I believe, makes a better tasting bean and then a better tasting chocolate, but it also helps the whole farm outright. And cocoa beans and cocoa pods to pollinate, they need all the little insects and so forth as well. And a lot of them are are near rainforest habitat too. So organic farming, it just allows that to take part more naturally, a more natural process than using a lot of pesticides and fertilisers and so forth. ZX as well ensures that there's no indentured labour, no children, fair pay. A lot of the countries that cocoa comes from, we really have to be aware of that to ensure the right practices are being done. So yeah, organic farming, it is, I believe, better for you, just like a lot of organic food, rather than having all the pesticides and so forth in there. It's a more natural product.
0: Yeah. So why is it important
1: to you It's important to me for a number of reasons. Number one, I have two children. And so we do have to pass on this environment and the world to the next generation. Number two, it really comes to taste as well. And number three, it's looking after everyone in the cocoa process, right from the regions and the to our, to our really, of where these places are grown, to the people involved and to the finished product of us all ingesting it and
0: enjoying it and eating it. So, Rebecca, in a nutshell, are your products very different to the mass-produced chocolate that we see on the supermarket shelves that lots and lots of Australians love and adore? Are they very different to those big mass-produced brands? It's hugely different. Because
1: not only the organic farming and the ethically traded nature of it, ours has much higher cocoa mass percentages. We do different cocoa mass. So the, a lot of people say bitterer. I like to say, you know, richer, more intense. And so we do 37% milk. A lot of high street milk chocolate only have 19% of the mass. And we go right up to 68, 73, 80, 90, and 99% coverage. Also being hand-tempered on marble, we do small batches and being small batches, we do very fresh batches. And then we do a range of different flavors using beautiful spices and herbs that we get Ian Hempel at Herbie's to do for us. So we've got a lot more, I think, unique flavors and smaller and fresher batches, just like olive oil, even though chocolate can have long use by dates, fresh is best. So we can do very fresh
0: boutique batches as well. So would you say chocolate is a health food if it's done properly? Well, to a point, to a point, it's got all the PAs
1: and flavonoids that are supposed to make you feel happy and hence you hear that people feel happier and a lot of people say it might be an aphrodisiac Casanova himself said it was the elixir of love. So, <laughs> so it does make you feel good. I think it makes you feel pretty happy. And I think it can be a health food. There's a lot of nutrients in you know, a lot of magnesium in chocolate. And so, sure you've got to be careful of the sugar. So we did No Sugar, No Sweetener originally with Sarah Wilson for her I Quit Sugar brand. And that now we've extended to our No Sugar, No Sweetener range. And it's now our biggest online seller, which I never expected it to be.
0: That's extraordinary. So this is a range you've developed with no sugar in it. So what is that? Is that the 99% cocoa? That's it. 99% and it's just got a little bit of vanilla
1: and the plain is just that. And then we do a blackberry and lime, a hazelnut and sea salt, a raspberry, peppermint, orange. And so when it comes to things like peppermints and oranges, it's all organic oils put in. And then obviously hazelnut, sea salt, things like blackberry, we get them freeze dried and then we ground them down to a powder and mix those through as the only highlight. Yeah, it's our biggest
0: online seller now. Do you actually make the chocolate from the cocoa beans or where do you get your actual chocolate ingredient?
1: We used to do direct runs. So when I was working with Harvey Nichols in London, we would be able to go to the cooperative, then work out exactly the blend we wanted done. And they were one tonne runs to do that. We don't really do that anymore here. And we go through a company called Belcolard and we buy their Coverture, their Coverture chocolate. But it's all the certified organic and all those things that we talked about before. They have lots of different types of chocolate you can buy from the bigger companies. So you still have to be careful. You're getting the ones that whether it's fair trade or organic or so forth, because they have a lot of different ones. But then we also still deal with small companies like Demore, which are small batches that deal directly with the plantation that they're getting the cocoa from. So we
0: we do a bit of a blend. Yeah, so there's no cocoa grown in Australia?
1: There is right up the top. We don't use that at the moment and I don't know a lot about it. But yes, right up the top end they do. Basically, When it comes to chocolate, it has to be 10 degrees north or south of the equator for those pods to grow. They're just getting in there and it's exciting. It's exciting that someone in Australia is doing it, but we're not involved in growing cocoa here.
0: Yeah. Now, I just want to go back to the no and low sugar. Tell me more about the expansion of that, the growth or the explosion of growth that you talked about.
1: Sure. So originally we had our 100% cocoa mass and people were finding coming into the cocoa
0: store wanting higher and higher percentages. When you say higher and higher percentages of cocoa and less sugar. That's correct. So
1: they wanted stronger, stronger chocolate with less sugar. And so we would go at jumping from 74% to 80% to 90% and did a whole range at 90. And then the Demand was maybe to be more. And at the time, I just wanted more information about this whole no sugar craze because I obviously ate a lot of chocolate. So no sugar wasn't a big deal for me. And I had heard about Sarah Wilson and her I Quit Sugar book and podcast and so forth that she was yeah, doing. Phenomenon, really. Yeah, definitely. So I decided to get in contact with them. And at first I sent them the 90% range and they really liked it and said, we should do something together. But then it came back that really we shouldn't use the 90%. As her brand was I Quit Sugar, it should have no sugar. So that was the first time that I thought, okay, well, let's see You know, can we even temper this pure cocoa mass from there? And it was much harder to temper. We really had to change our tempering style to make it work. And so we started with Sarah for an Easter range doing her I Quit Sugar Raspberry No Sugar Egg and a Hot Cross Bun Spice Bar it completely sold out and we did it the following year also and again total sellout and then after that sarah was starting to stop the iquick sugar herself but we still had this huge demand and that's when we just thought right we'll do a no sugar no sweetener brand still based on the same products but we'll expand the range People love it. The mixed spice in particular and the hazelnut and sea salt are bestsellers. And we also now sell that through Harris Farm as well.
0: So you have been growing fast. Can you give us a picture of, you know, how fast have you grown? How many ranges? Who are you selling it to now? Who are you distributing it to, given that you've only got the one actual store and the Sydney Chocolate School? How fast has your growth been?
1: My business plan or lack of business plan has been like that, up and down, up and down. It never went to one plan. So originally, my first store I opened in two thousand and four in Edinburgh, of all places, and so the wow, big... that's far flung. <laughs> I know, so I wanted to stay close to Europe. But my schoolgirl French wasn't great. My Italian was worse. So I thought, well, what's the most European city that speaks English? And I thought Edinburgh. And of course, I was over there anyway, because I did my first training in France uh, and then uh, extra training in Manchester. And so in 2004, I opened the first cocoa chocolate in Edinburgh and then opened the Edinburgh chocolate school there as well. And that's when I first knew, okay, we have to expand. Being naive, but the best thing about naivety is you feel like you can try pretty much anything. I thought, well, what stores would be the best? And I came down to Harvey Nichols, Selfridges and Liberty. Liberty, it was a no-go. Selfridges, we got our siren collection box in there. So I was really thrilled with that. But Harvey Nicks was the game changer. For anyone starting a business out there, I found literally just found out who the food buyer was, got in contact and arranged a meeting, not knowing if that's what you do or if that's what you're allowed to do. And Claire Mossford was the head buyer at the time and she was just open and terrific. And she said, I love this product. Let's give it a go. So straight away, cocoa Chocolate was in Harvey Nix, which opened doors for us. And then they had signature chocolate bars and drinking chocolates that I thought was really weird flavors. So they had three, a dark, a milk, a white. And I remember the white was with lemon. And I just didn't know if that worked so well. And I said to Claire, look, would you give me a go at redesigning the Harvey Nichols signature range and coming up with new flavors? And I was just so lucky that she was the head buyer. And she said, give it a go. Great. So next thing we were making all the Harvey Nichols signature bars and drinking chocolates, as well as our own brand being in Harvey Nick, which was just fantastic and really changed everything for us. So that
0: was all from Edinburgh. You were doing that for Harvey Nicks and you were, you were making exclusively all the Harvey Nicks signature brand chocolate. That's right. All the
1: signature brand chocolate bars and drinking chocolates were all through cocoa chocolate.
0: Just take me back to how did you come up with the name? I mean, cocoa as in the cocoa from the cocoa bean, but it's not spelt that way. So how did you decide on the name?
1: Yeah. So at the time when I started, organic often was brown paper bags or hessian or all that very earthy look. And I'd done a postgraduate of design at UTS and I loved beautiful packages, beautiful things. And I thought, well, why can't organic chocolate also be in beautiful packaging? So a lot of our chocolate boxes and everything, they're all watercolour boxes that have made strong enough so people can keep them for trinkets and notes and things after. And lots of people always say they never throw our boxes out. And so, at the time, of course, Coco Chanel being a the huge influence, and I thought, well, the cocoa bean, Coco Chanel, and making a really beautiful refined chocolate, organic, but in a lovely box. And so, the cocoa chocolate really came from a blend of the cocoa bean and Coco
0: Chanel. Fantastic. Take me back even further. Where did you come up with the idea that you wanted to be a chocolatier? I left home really
1: early. I left home at 16 years old and I worked in the hospitality industry a lot of the time, mainly, at, well, first of all, as a dishwasher. Then as I got promoted to a short order cook and then a, a waitress when wow. I went through uni. So I was always surrounded by amazing food and it was the best education, you know, being in that industry. At the end, I knew I wanted to either do olive oil or chocolate. But more so, I also knew I wanted a product. I didn't want it to be me to be selling because that was always so much hard work. I wanted a product because I thought you could then do things in bulk, you know, have more of an opportunity to hopefully make money as well in that way rather than yourself having to be everywhere. You know, you can have a product that's everywhere. So it started off with that. And then I went to France in the end to
0: study chocolatiering and then it went went from there. But why chocolate? From thinking you wanted to have a product to, oh, I'll go to France to learn how to be a chocolatier.
1: Sure. So when I did my postgrad in design at UTS, that's when I really liked the idea of a product. But I also was waitressing that whole time. So I was in the food industry. So food was really front and center. It was then that I thought, well, olive oil or chocolate. There were two things that I really liked, two things that through working at fine dining restaurants, I realized, wow, these can be super different than what we're buying on, on the high street generally, the taste of it. And so at first olive oil, I realized, well, you know what? Most people like olive oil if no one mucks around with it. You know, They just like it to be a single origin, beautifully cold pressed olive oil leave it alone. So there wasn't a lot of scope. Whereas chocolate, you know, I realized, well, there's a lot you can do. You can make chocolate bars, you can make chocolate truffles, you can make drinking chocolates, you can do chocolate boxes and which would involve the design side of it, which really excited me. And so that's when I decided, right,
0: well, let's look more into this chocolate game. So did you think then I'm going to have a business of doing this or did you think I'll go and work for someone and do chocolates and design their beautiful boxes?
1: I always wanted my own business. Leaving home so young and when you have to pay your own bills all the way, you're a hard worker and you have to be a hard worker. So when I got my first job at washing dishes at Gabby's Cafe down at Bondi where I grew up, The first school holidays that came around, and all my friends had those two months to lie on the beach, and I had to go back to work. I realized pretty quickly okay I'd, I need an education and then I need to get somewhere and by that time I'd been promoted to a short order cook and I loved it I loved it so much but I knew I had to go back and do my HSC which I did in one year at, eight, at East Sydney TAFE which was fantastic the you know range of different people that go to having to do their HSC in one year again
0: lots of stories lots of different backgrounds of why people were even there That shows enormous sort of guts and determination on your part. Look, it was just what you had to do, you know, to try and get somewhere.
1: I actually loved economics and I did three-unit economics at ECDT, which I know sounds so bizarrely different. My whole thing was I thought, I'll go to uni and study economics because I really loved it. And I remember one of the most exciting things I ever learned in economics was they said what the definition of profit was. And it was so simple and it seemed so exciting. And I couldn't believe that something maybe as dry as economic could come up with something just that sounded so fun and intriguing. And it said, profit, the reward for risk taking. And I never forgot it. And I thought, really, is that what profit is? The reward for risk taking? So simple. And I thought, well, I can take risks and that sounds fun. And I loved economics so much. And unfortunately, doing your HSC in one year and then working because I was in my own apartment. So I, I was working as a waitress at Ravisi's at Bondi at night time. I didn't get the best HSC result, but I did really well in economics. I didn't get in and I was, you know, gutted, but I did get in to do at Sydney Uni to first do education in economics. And I was sort of told, well, look, do that for one year and then transfer. And so I thought, okay. And I was still at Sydney Uni where I want to do economics. So I did that for one year. And unfortunately, life just takes different. Hard, and I was so excited to in the next year at last transfer into economics because one thing I omitted to say after my first job at Gabby's, when I thought, oh no, I need to do something more serious. Back then you'd hit the papers to look for a job. And Ordmanet, Aud, Aud Manette, the stock firm in this yep. is now
0: 1987, was looking for runners. 1987 pre the October 87 crash. That's it. So I bought my white high heels
1: as you did when you got a city job back then. And back then you would have to physically get the trades down Jamison Street to Bond Street. And they did that with runners. And so I'd be right all morning. You'd run down Jamison Street, run back up because Aldmanette was in York Street and the stock exchange of Bond Street, run up and down in the white high heels. And then you'd spend the afternoon microfilming all the trade. But that was my first foray into thinking, this economics thing's really exciting, really fun. But I had my first bit of sexism there too, is that I noticed only one trader, first of all, was a woman. And when I was saying, I think I want to be a trader, I had one guy saying, well, A, you can't because you don't have an education. And B, you'll never earn as much as me because he wanted to be a trader because you're a girl and that was a big impetus as well to go back and get my hsc but then as said so i got into sydney uni to do the economics but as a bachelor of education to to transfer and then at the end of that my beautiful brother who was a real greenie and was at macquarie studying a post-grad in environmental science, but was a real greeny hippie. It all got too much for him, and he committed suicide. So then I, it was a big change in my career because I suddenly thought, well, I really, I maybe I can't do economics because it was so against everything he stood for. Oh, Rebecca, I'm so
0: sorry to hear that.
1: Oh no, not at all. So it was a real change in in a career because. That threw me for six. And so I just finished the education and then went around Australia traveling, then came back and did the design at UTS where one of the ones was product design. That's when I thought, right, where's the product, olive oil or chocolate? As said, over in France, now we're in 1999, and then opened my first chocolate store in 2004.
0: But look, it's just extraordinary, really. I mean, when you say you, you went to France, I just want to go a little bit deeper into that. Did you just tack that onto a kind of a gap year trip or did you actually think I've researched this? France is the place to learn. And you went to the very prestigious Valrona School. Yeah. So
1: after I finished the Bachelor of Education, I went around Australia for three and a half years solo, believe it or not. And so when I came back to do the postgraduate in UTS in design, I knew I wanted to do something creative. I was lucky enough to get accepted. It was then over the two years that product design was one of the courses and that's the whole idea of a product. And a lot of people find that very unromantic. They want it to have been chocolate my whole life. No changes, but it really was product first. And then what will the product be? Which then was chocolate. France was the place to be. You know, you always heard about French chocolate, Belgian chocolate, Italian chocolate. And I had known that Valrona had a chocolate school. So that is where I wanted to be. At the time, anybody could go to the chocolate school in France. Oh, right. So this is at the
0: Valrhona School in, what, southeast France on the Rhone River. That is.
1: Tans de Hermitage, just outside Lyon. And
0: back when I went there, anyone could go.
1: Anyone could go. As long as you paid to be there, you could go. Now it's invitation only, but it was very international. There were people from Singapore, London, all over the places, but short courses. And so the main reason that it was so good to go there was I learned how to hand temper on marble. I then went back to the UK. I was doing design at the BBC to keep the money coming in. There was a place called Slattery's at Manchester where I learned how to make truffles and so forth. And then that's when I decided, well, what's the most European English-speaking city? Edinburgh was the one I had made enough recipes that I thought I have a few products here to bring to market got myself a lease in Edinburgh and the scariest thing was putting the sign on the door because then I thought oh wow I have to go through with this now
0: wow so it was cocoa chocolate and that's what the sign was that's it that's it once it went on the window it felt real Can you remember that very first day you opened and that first customer? Sure. So that was 2004
1: and my very first day, I was so excited. I had three products, which I sort of moved around, but I had got a liquor license as well, thinking, okay, I'll do chocolates. But in the evening, maybe it could sort of be a wine bar. The Edinburgh tenements are so beautiful. I thought that. Worst business plan. (laughs) Ever, because in the end, all I had was semi-alcoholic mums coming in because they thought it was a nice place to drink. Oh, it was, not, it was not good. I got rid of the alcohol pretty quick. But, yeah, my first day I opened, everyone would just do this at the window. And I remember feeling I need a big hook, you know, because I had lots of people doing that in the window, but yeah. hardly
0: anyone coming in the door. Wow. So artisanal chocolate was not a big thing in Edinburgh at that time.
1: There was one other place that was on the Royal Mile that was really prestigious in doing chocolate. Unfortunately, they went bust. It's been quite amazing to see brands that you just love around you fail for one reason or another. Um, and that particular brand, as far as I'm aware, they failed because they expanded too quickly, you know, with two big premises. They also got a... Um, is it called a succession when you get your own little shop within a shop at Harvey Nicks? And they had done that and that hadn't gone wrong for them. And it's funny, they, there was chocolate conferences because we're all so close to Europe. That would happen all the time. And I went and said, oh, I'm in Edinburgh too. It's so lovely to meet you. You know, I'm a huge fan of your work. And I remember they really weren't very nice to me at all. And when they went broke, they turned up on my doorstep and asked for a job. Oh,
0: Wow. Isn't that
1: interesting, you know, how things turn around? But their their style was so different to mine. And that's the other great thing that, you know, has been fun about my style is in the end I was so self-taught. You know, even trying to find and work out how to make my best drinking chocolate. And we won Time Out Magazine's 2009, the best hot chocolates in Sydney. And I remember, first of all, developing that hot chocolate and thinking, because you could buy a flaking machine, but I didn't really like the flake. It was so fine. And then I remember putting chocolate in a blender and thinking, okay, what will happen with this? And it turned into little rocks. And I was thinking, no, that doesn't look good. And I was just shaving back my marble one day to clean it. And I was shaving these perfect flakes. And there the cocoa hot chocolate was born and blending it with pure Valrhona cocoa powder and we did a rose and black pepper, which was the one that Time Out listed as one of the best hot chocolates in Sydney. And we won gold at the Great Taste Awards in London, which was judged by the Rue Brothers for the rose and black pepper,
0: which was really exciting. Fantastic, Rebecca. So how long do you reckon it took you to perfect your chocolate making, you know, the flavours that you've perfected? Is, is that still going on or did you get it right maybe, you know, in the last 10 years? it was hit and miss trial and error
1: at the very beginning some things tasted lovely some didn't and it was all about evolving there were always going to be some some definite You know, firm favorites in the world, like rose, orange, peppermint, you know, they, they were a given. And you knew that a lot of mass market or you know, people coming in who were used to mass market would demand those sort of flavors. But then we always then tried to evolve them. So instead of just a rose, let's add some black
0: pepper. So there's this beautiful warmth behind the floral. Right. And you were doing this, all this experimentation, changing your recipes in the back of the Edinburgh shop, or were you doing it at home? At the
1: very beginning in Edinburgh, it was in my kitchen tenement, but you did have to get a commercial license for that and were fully uh, checked. We were also members of SOPA, which was the Scottish Organic Producers Association. So you're always getting tested and here it's the AOC. But within a year, I had my own commercial kitchen in Edinburgh and also ran the Edinburgh Chocolate School out of there. When I opened here at Curabilly, I thought what I will do is at first I didn't have a commercial kitchen and I will import everything from my Edinburgh kitchens here while I was looking for a kitchen. Absolute disaster because I was, of course, you know, budget running out of money often. And so I thought I would ship a container load of cocoa chocolate from Edinburgh to Sydney. And I never forget there's my curability store and so excited, the big trucks coming down the lane. So excited, open it, open my boxes. All my outside watercolor divine boxes are looking great. I'm stacking the shelves and I open one of them and they're completely molded. Oh every no. single one. <gasps> They've all got wet on the container ship, even though they're covered in plastic and I couldn't use any of it. So the chocolate
0: had molded or the packaging? The chocolate inside. Oh, no. Oh, that must have been just heartbreaking. It was the worst. So
1: I did not want to make chocolate at home, you know, been there, done that. And yeah. by this time I'd had two little children as well. And so I was part of a mum squad down at Balmoral. And we used to have to run and we ran around Middlehead one year and there was this big sign up from the Harbour Trust. The first time they were opening Middlehead, the beautiful old places on the harbour there for commercial tender. And I thought, what an amazing place for the school if that, you know, if that worked out. And so I was the first to be given a commercial tender for one of the harborside little properties there. And that was the kitchen and then opened it up in 2015 for the chocolate school. And we've had over 15,000 people come and learn how to make hand temper do hand tempering on marble and make chocolate. And I guess our most famous participant was Adele. When she was on tour, she booked us out.
0: Yes. How wonderful. What she came down. Tell us about that. Adele, the singer. That's right. So first of all, I got a phone call from someone going, "We want
1: to have the chocolate school, and someone's coming. We can't tell you who it is. Can you do it?" And it's like, "Okay, yeah, I can. I can do it. But can I ask who it is? No, you can't. Tell, can't say who it is." Okay, a bit unusual, but no problem. And then the next most heavy handed was the security, because they came in first and our kitchen looks over Sydney Harbor. That's the best part about it. And they went and they took all put all the blinds down and, and I said, Oh, do you really have to do that? And they said, Don't you know who's coming? And I said, Well, no, I don't. And then they tell they said, it's Adele. And I went, oh, okay. And they said, well, that, I said, that's okay. No one knows she's going to be here. And they said, no, the paparazzi would pay a fortune to see Adele eating chocolate, curtains down. And then... Oh, wow. Adele walks in and she was down to earth, a lovely, exactly what you'd expect. Yeah. And I said to her, look, you probably don't even know where you are. And out those curtains, it's the harbour. Do you mind if I put them up? And she went... Okay, I guess not. And I said, no one knows you. So we pulled them up. And next thing, by the end of it, we had the doors open to the (laughs) harbour. She's eating the chocolate she just made. And she went, uh, because she had seen me on Getaway. Who thinks Adele is sitting around after tour watching Getaway? And she said, I said to my assistant, if we can get her, I reckon we can trust her. And she goes, I knew I could trust you. And she she had a great time. I think it was one of the only times she could just sit out on the balcony, look at Sydney Harbour, eat
0: some chocolate and no, no paparazzi photos were taken. Fantastic. Did she bring a gang with her or was it her road crew or manager or friends? She had a group outside
1: who didn't enter the kitchen, but it was her and her son. Oh, fantastic. She wanted her son to come and make chocolate and enjoy themselves and then she had her partner at the time on her phone, you know, just in the background, and he was lying in bed. It was hysterical. Just enjoying
0: it with her. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, can, you can just imagine her doing that. She's so natural and, and full on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was saying to him, I told you you should come. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, can I just take you back to... What you learnt from Harvey Nicks, because I imagine, you know, that's a big job. That's a they're big orders, I would imagine, even though you're producing artisanal chocolates in small quantities. What did you learn from that gig? And and was that always in Edinburgh, or did you end up having a shop in London? It was a huge
1: learning curve, Harvey Nichols. That's all fine, that you can go in there and with a bit of bravado and say, yes, I can do all this, then you have to deliver. I think the first thing I learned is the amount of information you have to give them because now you are sending product. They had a centralized place that you had to send all your product but you certainly have to have your barcodes, your serial numbers, who it's to get it to the loading dock between certain times. And there's not just one Harvey Nicks. There was about five. It's going back such a long time. Um, I'm trying to remember, including one in Bahrain. So you had to remember Bahrain, no alcohol. So nothing to do with alcohol in Bahrain. So logistics was a huge learning curve. Of course, quantities. So we had tempering machines then, we couldn't hand temper everything. We still hand temper everything in Sydney. And with David Jones, we were nationwide in David Jones here, we could still hand temper. Harvey Nicks, different ball game. So we had to get tempering machines to help us and, and get that all organized. Packaging. Packaging was such a huge thing of the cocoa chocolate ideology to have to let that go for Harvey Nichols. And I was so excited. If you go to our website, there's a picture of the Harvey Nichols labels we had to use. I was hoping, you know, cocoa leaves, cocoa pods, there's so many beautiful things you could have. And when they gave us the artwork, it was so devastating. It's a lady's pair of legs in stockings and high heels. It was like, no, not that, really. Were you able to change that
0: with your... No. No. No, And
1: so giving away that power to them and having to do everything in the black and white stockings, that was, that was hard. You soon got into it, round to it, and having... And enjoying, you know, the fast-moving pace and the things you had to learn, but it was logistics. I'd say one of the biggest learning
0: curves. And was that something that you brought with you when you came back to Sydney?
1: Definitely. It then got us ahead of the game to be able to go to David Jones now and have the confidence to, again, ask who the head buyer is, set up a meeting, show them the product, tell them the background. And then when David Jones had the same sort of thing, except they didn't have a centralized warehouse, you have to send to David Jones departments and we were nationwide. So that was different, having to get things to certain places. And of course, in Australia, we now had to deal with the heat. And my first big order to David Jones Queensland melted. Oh,
0: no. I know. <laughs> oh, so you're talking about a fair few disasters here, but obviously there were some steps along the way that really kind of turbocharged you. Harvey Nichols and making their signature range as well as doing your own range. That was a huge step up for you. What was the next one once you got back to Australia? Was it getting these uh, commissions, I guess, by distributors like David Jones, like Harris Farm Markets?
1: Yeah, David Jones was probably the big one um, to also allow us to feel that we can step forward, that we've earned our place Uh, because Harvey Nichols always felt like we were super, super lucky, you know, that we lucked out. When we did it at David Jones as well, for once it felt like, okay, we've earned our place. That then allowed us also to, I really wanted to collaborate now, you know, I really wanted to start having a bit more fun. So uh, David Jones, we now have the skill set. We had the scale, and I wanted to do collaborations with certain people like Campos Coffee. So I was loving Campos Coffee, it was the big deal at the time. So going and introducing myself to them and doing a Campos
0: Coffee bar. What was the funding source back at the beginning? Where did you get the money from? Did you beg, borrow from banks or from friends? So the Cocoa Chocolate. Initially in Edinburgh, I had
1: saved up $10,000 and that was working. So Savings BBC, luckily I got a job in design at London, which paid really well. It paid £350 a day. And back then that was fantastic. I was teaching design at Perth College during the day and then I was doing an internet cafe at the front desk at night time. And I always remember first thinking at Coco, I'll have made it if I only ever have one job one day.
0: Yeah. So you self-funded it. Self-funded you it. it, yeah.
1: Ten thousand pound. I started off with ten thousand pounds, and then the development of product had to wait. You know, I'm I've still got products I'm waiting to do because we could never do everything because we couldn't fund it. We'd save, and then we could get another product out. Save, get another product out because packaging's always the expensive part of it all.
0: We're going to take a little break there. And we're going to come back with part two next week. So stay with us. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.